Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Hello, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Now, this is the place, as you should know by now, because you've been subscribing and enjoying and spreading and telling your friends and they've all been going, wow, why didn't you tell me about this before? Well, it's a place where our fantastic authors bring into the studio a handful of objects that have inspired them. My name is Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm joined by an author whose work is considered seminal in the speculative fiction genre. There you go, speculative fiction genre. He created the term cyberspace. His short story, Johnny Mnemonic, was made into a film with Keanu Reeves, and his first full novel, Neuromancer, created a language for the information age years before the internet even happened. My guest's new book, Agency, is set both in the recent past and 100 years into the future. In the past, Verity takes a job road testing a pair of AI glasses called Eunice, and in 2136, officials named Lobeer and Netherton want to delve back to the past to change the course of what happens with those rogue AI specs and their owner. So, I have to say, I am very excited, as indeed so many people I know were when I told them. William Gibson. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I mean, you are by no means at the end of your career, but do you think of legacy of what you will leave this earth? I'd like to to stop soon enough to not leave those three, three or four bad novels that some very good novelists wind up having to leave behind, you know, that they, they novels written just to keep paying the rent. But how do you know at that point? I mean, look at music artists. Oh, I know. Right? Well, that's the, the terrifying thing is that, that you don't know. And the other thing I've been discovering is that one's imposter syndrome on reaching a certain age switches from when will I discover that I'm absolutely no good at this to when will they discover that I've lost it? In the end, you can allow your ears. Yes, I was I was hot shit once, but little do they know what you know what a pathetic shadow of myself I am now when I sit before the typewriter. It's the same self sabotaging mechanism, but it, it presents itself as a slightly different voice. Do you have to overcome the self-sabotaging mechanism often? I've never entirely rid myself of it, but I think that that's actually been a positive thing. I think it it helps keep me me honest or something. Do you feel powerful as a novelist to be able to create these worlds, or is there a point at which you feel as though in some ways you're enslaved to them? I love set building and, and I love I love world building. <clears throat> so I, I just take this unalloyed, I suppose rather childlike pleasure in doing that. <clears throat> but with the characters, as an undergraduate I read Ian Forster's aspects of the novel and, and one of his views is that a novelist fully in control of the characters isn't even close to doing the real job. He, for him, it was essential that the characters completely take over, and he would go along with them. And I, I remember 
marveling at that when I read it because it was so counter to any of the uh, advice to new writers, particularly in science fiction. But then when I began to try to write, it turned out that, like him, I'm unable to do it if my conscious self is in control of the process. And at a certain point, there's this really great pleasure that comes watching where it's going and not really knowing. It has its flip side of tremendous anxiety about, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, what will, you know, will this be any good? But, you know, somehow I, somehow I muddle, muddle through it. You've brought some objects with you. Well, I say brought. We have objects that are in our minds that virtual, are important to you, virtual yes. ones, because, virtual of course, objects. you've come from Vancouver uh, via a punishing tour schedule that most yes. bands would be yes. uh, kind of uh, exhausted by, let alone uh, someone not having the um, benefit of a road crew and a, mm-hmm. a rider. And every a bus. Yeah, no tour bus. The tour bus is what I was missing. <laughs> So we're going to get your choices in a moment. How many years has it taken you to persuade people that you're not trying to predict the future? That science fiction's job isn't to predict the future, but to live deeply in the present? That question seems to presuppose that I've had success. Yeah, (laughs) I've had no success, very little (laughs) success in dissuading people from seeing me as prescient, but... I've known from the start that not only was I not doing it, but that neither was this genre. Although many of its leading practitioners would would disagree with me on that. I think it's always been really only about the present. Any work of speculative fiction that survives for a hundred years, say, we only read it today to learn about what the moment in which it was written was like. We don't go to Jules Verne, you know, go, oh, he predicted the future of air travel. But he didn't. I was really interested, William, to read that after your father passed away when you were very young and you moved to Virginia to this small Appalachian town, that you were abruptly exiled. This is a, a quote from you to what seemed like the past. This began my relationship with science fiction. How so? I found myself in a place where, you know, literally one could look in one direction and see what was happening that, you know, that day in the world on television. Look in the other and be looking looking out the window where there was a man plowing a field with a mule. There were these constant uh, atemporal frames it's like, you know, you could see, you know, uh-oh, it's the Civil War. No, wait, it's World War One. No, wait, it, it's, uh, it's the 20th century with Walter Cronkite. It had, had an unusual effect on me. And, and a year or two after moving there on the uh, magazine rack at the bus station, which was the only, only place in town that stayed open all night, I happened to discover one of those little digest-sized science fiction fiction magazines, uh, read it, and was just so hooked. I was just, you know, it it got me. And so for 
a few years, I basically did, you know, other than school, I did nothing but read all of the science fiction I could get my hands on. I'm fascinated by that time in the Appalachians because I guess that's when you become conscious that different times can be existing in the same space. Yeah. Past, present, yeah. future can all be there simultaneously. And your book Agency, of course, is set in the recent past, but a slightly uh, alternative one, which heavily features our first object. These yes. A pair of AI glasses. How did this object come about as something that would be central to agency? The character of the AI, Eunice, who the other female protagonist, Verity, accesses via a pair of, of uh, Google Glass-like spectacles. It doesn't look as though she's wearing VR goggles or anything. She looks as though she, she's wearing aspirationally Scandinavian eyeglasses. A lot of the aesthetic and, and uh, future stuff decisions I make are about trying to keep what's going on on the page clear when people are using different kinds of media. And I really felt, with this book, I think I hit some sort of absolute limit because I'll have Verity receiving texts from Eunice while she's speaking over her glasses to three or four individuals who are actually in, in you know, a hundred years in the future. And all of the, uh, the quotes and the he said, she said stuff, you know, the, the basic authorial grunt work at that level is astonishing. Um. Agency is a, a sort of sequel to your book, The Peripheral, which came out in 2014. Did you know that The Peripheral would have a follow-on piece to it when you began it? No, I, I didn't. I had promised myself that it wouldn't. <laughs> How yeah. did that work out well, for you, will you? Well, I got to the end of it. I said, well, that's a wrap. And I'm certainly never going back to this because the structure is so you know, incredibly complicated. It would just be a nightmare to extend it. And then I woke up on uh, the morning of November 7th, 2016, and saw that Donald Trump had been elected president. The weirdness quotient of, of contemporary reality had just gone completely off the charts, and I'd been writing a book set in 2017, set in the, in the coming year. And I realized that the, the zeitgeist of the, the you know, global emotionality of the, this book I'd, I'd been working on would be completely out of pace you know, if I finished it and completed it and published it. Let's go back to your first novel, Neuromancer, because that's the next object you have for us. What was it that fascinated you about the language of the present. You went to a sci-fi convention in Seattle and heard words such as 
interface used as a verb. As an active verb. Well, I thought that that was extraordinarily sexy in a in a sci-fi way that you know you could interface with that or or I interfaced with or interface as an active active command and not just not just a noun and all of the language I would hear at those SF cons in Seattle that I would hear from, from people who were my age or younger then who were working in the very beginning of Seattle's digital industry. Yeah, some of them were working for Microsoft. I appropriated Microsoft as a noun. I used it with a lowercase m. And Microsoft's become little things that people plug into sockets behind their their ears to sort of like apps, like to augment their cognition. And I had no idea what I was doing. Like I had no idea who I was messing with. I knew it was, there was a company called that, but I didn't know that it was going to become Microsoft. You were an author of your own irritation in the sense that being president is something that you did. I mean, Case, the main character, Neuromancer, sends out for a modem when things were getting a bit crazy, yeah. um, but didn't, didn't know what a modem was. No, and uh, and I had no, I had no way of googling it. <laughs> had I been able to Google it, I I wouldn't have used it. But had I been able to Google it, none of the the strange poetry of it would have been there for me. But it was, you know, another word, and I thought, modem, that sounds ominous. (laughs) If you don't know what it means, I mean, what on earth could that... I had no idea what it was. How did it feel when musicians, very famous musicians, started to approach you and say how interested they were in your work? The musicians had been preceded by architects who had been uh, completely enthused by the design of Blade Runner and, and saying, you know, wow, I like your, you know, I like Neuromancer. Did you see Blade Runner? I, yeah, I did. I did, and I thought, that's interesting. It's, um, it, it's ha- having this impact on people who do something something completely else. When I started to hear from musicians, I knew the extent to which I'd been, the book had been influenced by musicians. And I'm hearing from some of the very musicians who had influenced the book, like it, it became a circular thing. But that was, encur- that, that was even more encouraging. Like, who did you hear from? Eventually I heard from David Bowie, I got to meet meet him. He was, he was interested in Neuromancer as a potential film property. He had a, he had a development deal somewhere, as indeed did Mick Jagger. Still still later, who I got to spend a a, a very interesting afternoon with. Here, you know, so, some years after that. Interesting how he was 
one of the, the best read people I'd ever discussed my fiction with. You know, understood what he what he'd read. I mean, I've, it was, it's a bit surreal. I mean, the level of that level of celebrity is, I think, almost inherently stressful. From at least at least for me, it's certainly evident that you know he he went to the London School of Economics and. and from this this conversation, but then some other inner part of me would, would suddenly scream in the most embarrassing, shrill way, oh, my God, it's Mick Jagger. And I kind of have to force it. He'd look at me like I'd be forcing it down. And, yeah, so, so you didn't it, ever verbalize that? I mean, no, that, was, no. that was your internal... No, that was some, that was some in, internal thing. Speaking of music, your next object is a piece of vinyl from 1977 by the British punk band Sex Pistols. Why is God Save the Queen an object you wanted to showcase today? In 1976, for an undergraduate course in science fiction history, I, I had written with the professor's uh, Permission in my first piece of short fiction, which she had insisted I <clears throat> submit for for publication, so I submitted it, expecting it to be rejected, to the most obscure possible publication, where it was accepted, and I, I was paid uh, the grand sum of twenty seven dollars American, but. 77, the punk year, completely derailed that for a couple of, a couple of years. You know, by 76, I, I'd become really uh, tired of most of the pop music that was coming out. Suddenly, punk was there, and I was never a, a huge Pistols fan, but they were so iconically central to what was happening. You said about punk, actually, that it's the last pre-digital counterculture. I think it is. It left behind a, a vast body of Xerox fanzines. It left a, a paper footprint in, in a way that subsequent countercultures are unlikely to do. And I would even question the extent to which countercultures as we've known them are possible in a digital universe because as we've known them, they required backwaters in, in which to incubate undisturbed. Well, that used to be the way it worked. And we don't have that now because the internet doesn't, doesn't really have backwaters in the same way. It, well, it has them, but they're all searchable. I mean, the dark web is a backwater, but that's used not no. to create counterculture. It's to be no. nefarious purposes, yes, I think. Really. Yeah. I'd like you to read okay. something from an agency, <clears throat> the opening few pages, if you would. This is from the first chapter of Agency, which is called The Unboxing. When Gavin had been packing the bag, the glasses were all she'd paid any real attention to. 
They'd involved a personal style decision, tortoiseshell plastic with gold-toned trim or an aspirationally Scandinavian gray. Now she took their generic black case from the bag, opened it, removed them, and spread the pale gray minimalist temples. Their lenses were untinted. She looked for a trademark, country of origin, model number. Finding none, she placed them on the table. Next, a flat white cardboard box in which a flimsy vacuum-formed tray, also white, hugged a nondescript black phone. <clears throat> Likewise, no name, she found, having freed it from the tray. She turned it on and placed it beside the glasses. A small white box revealed a generic-looking black headset with a single earbud. In another, three black chargers, one each for the glasses, phone, and headset, commonest of consumer fruit, their thin black cables still factory-coiled, secured with miniature black twist ties. All of this, according to Gavin, plug-and-play. Picking up the headset and switching it on, she hung it from her right ear, settling the earbud. She put the glasses on, pressing their low-profile power stud. Their headset pinged, a cursor appearing, a white arrow centered in her field of vision, then moving down of its own accord to the empty boxes, the chargers, the black phone. Here we go, said a woman's husky voice in Verity's ear. Glancing to her right toward what would have been the voice's source had anyone been there, Verity inadvertently gave whoever was controlling the cursor a view of the living room. Got a hoarding issue, Gavin, the voice asked, the cursor having settled on the miniature junkyard of semi-disassembled vintage electronics on Joe Eddy's workbench. I'm not Gavin, Verity said. No shit, said the voice, neutrally. That was an extract from Agency, written by my esteemed guest, uh, William Gibson. And don't forget to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast if you haven't already. And do tell your friends. We're also available on your Alexa-enabled device. Yesterday, I interviewed a woman called Brittany Kaiser, who is a senior member of Cambridge Analytica and the first one to be the whistleblower. Oh. Right. Um, Or the most senior person. And I watched the documentary The Great Hack and when Cambridge Analytica were trying to persuade people, this is how, how deep we are into data. This is how we can present to you profiles of the American electorate. They said we have five to five and a half thousand data points for each person. Data point, of course, representing an aspect of our behaviour. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? <clears throat> about perhaps <clears throat> that data can actually, in a positive way, remind us of how complex we are? I think that when, you know, in the, the dawn of the online world we know today, Back when I was writing writing Neuromancer and had never seen a personal computer, those people I was eavesdropping on in the convention bar in Seattle had personal computers, and they were they were using, I, I'm sure, whatever proto version of the internet first first got out there, 
and I, and apparently they in, envisioned it and continued to for quite a while. Inventor envisioned what I called cyberspace as a, a kind of interiority or as a, another dimension. It was, it was another place. It wasn't here. You gave them the word cyberspace. Yeah, uh, but it, it cyberspace wasn't wasn't where we are. Cyberspace is somewhere we go to communicate and exchange exchange data. And I would say that over the next decade or so, the, with the the growth and increasing complexity. Of of that online online universe, <clears throat> what we thought of then as cyberspace, everted out into this world, and they've gradually become really in, indistinguishable for for most of us, and, and I, I think that's been the big difference. For me, and it's something that when I think about Neuromancer, I think that that's something that I certainly didn't predict or or imagine that you know we would eventually come to think of our lives simultaneously as our lives, and however many hundred thousand. Uh, Personal data points Cambridge Analytica has relating to relating to our behaviour. William, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It has been. Thank you. Very enjoyable. World-renowned astrophysicist Joe Dunkley takes us on a journey from the stars and the moon to the distant lights of quasars and supernovas. Beginning with the basics, our universe is an accessible and thrilling guide to astrophysics and how it all works. On a clear night, the sky above us is strikingly beautiful, filled with stars and lit by the bright and changing moon. The darker our vantage point, the more stars come into view, numbering from the tens or hundreds into the many thousands. We can pick out the familiar patterns of the constellations and watch them slowly move through the sky as the Earth spins around. The brightest lights we can see in the night sky are planets, changing their positions night by night against the backdrop of the stars. A tour through the unknown and often unobserved, the audiobook edition of Our Universe is available to download now.